invite you to grab your Bibles with me this morning and open them to Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 8. Uh, by now you are familiar with the concept of Jesus serving as your high priest. Uh, you can't help but get away from that theme as you're in Hebrews. Uh, it was introduced early on, actually, in Hebrews chapter 1. It was briefly mentioned. Uh, then the author mentions it again in Hebrews chapter 2. Uh, then begins to elaborate on it a bit in chapter 5, and then all of chapter 7 was on the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. Uh, now we're continuing on in that section that's going to go all the way to chapter 10, verse 18, and what we're going to find is this author is still bent on presenting Jesus Christ in his role as high priest. So, although you might be familiar with the priesthood of Jesus Christ, I'll just say this morning, you're not familiar with it yet enough, uh, and neither am I. We need to hear more about it. We need to be reminded of it more. See, the truth is that when it comes to the priesthood of Jesus, you and I are too prone to forget. We're too, too prone to forget what it is that God has done for us. We're too prone to have kind of a superficial understanding that never gets very deep about the priestly work of Christ, and so we kind of kind of wallow in a, in a superficial Christianity, a superficial theology that doesn't really get into the depths of what God has done for us. Truth is, it just hasn't, for most of us, sunk down yet deep enough as it ought to be. You have to think about the very person of Christ. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. It means Yahweh saves. It was his primary designation on earth, that he would be known as a savior, someone who would come and help his people, someone who would deliver his people from their sins, a rescuer. That's his identity. And not only is he known as Jesus, but he is the Christ. The Christ is God's anointed one. The anointed one meaning that he is prophet and he is priest and he is king. And the author is saying, I want to make sure that that second designation of priestliness, that you understand the fullness and the richness what it means that Jesus is your priest. As you come each week, you're to be reminded to the point that as you hear the name Jesus, when you hear his name, you would think to yourself, that is my high priest. Jesus is my advocate. Jesus is my mediator. Jesus is my sacrifice. Jesus is my intercessor. Jesus is my substitute. And so the author is, is going to be taking that one truth and just throwing out tidbit after tidbit after tidbit after tidbit, painting the picture of the priestly ministry of Jesus Christ for the next three chapters. What he's going to begin to do this morning in chapter 8 is really give a commentary on a little buzzword that he used back up in chapter 7. And he's going to begin to take the idea of the priestly ministry of Christ and the new covenant by which we are reconciled to God, and he's going to put these two concepts together. And so if you look back up in chapter 7, verse 22, the writer of Hebrews said, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now when he comes to chapter 8, verse 1, he says the point in which we're saying is this, we have such a high priest, really such a great high priest, such a wonderful high priest, such a marvelous high priest. And what he's going to do is he's going to begin to expound on how this priest has brought about a better covenant. 
So he mentions it in 722. This high priest is the guarantor of a better covenant. Now chapter 8, verse 1, we're going to talk more about his priestly ministry, and we're going to connect it into what this new covenant is. In fact, the entire ministry of the old order of the priesthood was designed to pass away so that God could replace it with a better covenant. Now, some of you, when you hear me say, we're going to be talking about covenants for the next two or three weeks, are thinking, wow, um, I've had consultation with an attorney before, and to me, covenant sounds like a non-disclosure agreement, or a prenuptial, or a will, a trust, a buy-sell agreement, something that you have to sit down and deal with because it's, it's part of living in this life. You have contractual agreements. If you purchase a house, right, there's pages and pages to go through in the contract, and then if you have a mortgage, there's pages and pages to deal with of legal terminology. And so you're thinking, well, we're going to be unpacking the technical aspects of covenants, church, for the next couple of weeks together. And yet this author is, is very adamant that understanding even the technical aspects of God's covenants with his people produce profound worship and I would even say confidence in the trustworthiness of God on his behalf. So God wants you to think about your relationship with him, uh, certainly in the sense of, of filial love, right? A father who's adopted a child into his family, but he also wants you to think in, in legal terminology about your relationship. That that love is actually based in a, in a legal arrangement. There's contractual language. Covenant in the context of relationship would be an, an oath-bound relationship between two parties. That's how Mark Jones describes it. It's a relationship based upon uh, promises that are made, an agreement, so to speak, of the terms and arrangement of the relationship. And so when Jesus comes and he brings about the new covenant... What he did was he said, I'm going to bring about a new arrangement for how God's people are going to relate to him. A new arrangement for how God's people are going to relate to him. Now, if you're like me, it's probably been a while since you've just said in prayer, God, thank you so much for the new covenant. Or maybe when you're evangelizing, you need to say to someone, hey, how would you like to take part in the new covenant? Right? They're going to think that you're more of a wacko than they already would if you just shared scripture with them. It's not common, familiar language to talk about being part of the new covenant. And yet when you want to, to understand how it is that you relate to God, this is such a significant concept in the mind of the writer of Hebrews. In verses 8 through 12 of chapter 8, he is going to issue the longest single quote of the Old Testament in the New Testament. And that quote is going to be quoting a passage on the new covenant. If you take all the, all the citations of the Old Testament in the new, this is the longest one in your Bible because he wants you to understand how you relate to the new covenant. And so this morning, we're just going to kind of get a taste and dip our toe in. And then over the next couple of weeks, we're going to begin to really unpack and understand this new covenant. This morning, your outline is very simple. Jesus, the new priest, brings a new covenant. And so the author wants to show you, yet again, more about this ministry that he already keeps talking about. And, and very much if you've uh, studied First John, you find uh, John seems like he has an argument that he's flowing with and you're tracking. And then what's he do? He circles back around and he kind of says the same thing. And then you think, okay, I'm tracking. And then he circles back and he says the same thing slightly differently. 
Um, That's essentially what the writer of Hebrews is going to do. And so this morning's text is not really anything new that we haven't heard yet, but just kind of looking from another vantage point at these same realities. First, you're going to see that this new priest has accomplished your forgiveness. It's going to come in verse 1 when we see him, Jesus, seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty. Second, we're going to see that Jesus fulfilled the established pattern that was set in verses 2 through 5. And then last, we're going to see that he inaugurated the better covenant, really in verses 6 and 7. Let's read our passage together this morning, Hebrews chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. Everything I've just been talking about in chapter 7 is, is this point. We have, as God's people, such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places. In the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all. Since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, There would have been no occasion to look for a second. My friends, when you begin to worship Jesus as your high priest, you understand that this new priest came and he accomplished your forgiveness. That's our first point. He accomplished your forgiveness. This relates to now how you would define the relationship that you have with God, the arrangement by which you come near to him. And so he says in verse 1, the point Uh, The point about this high priest, yes, Jesus is a prophet. Yes, Jesus is a king. Jesus is also a priest. And that is our focal point for the moment. A divine priest, the very son of God, a royal priest. He's incomparable. He's wonderful. And if you want to prove how great and how marvelous and how wonderful this high priest is, just look at where he is right now. Okay, so the way this is functioning grammatically is, is see what a wonderful high priest you have. He's the one who right now is located somewhere very special, very important. Where is he right now? He is the one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. If you've read the New Testament, you're familiar that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Colossians 3 actually says that you're to set your minds on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Revelation 3 says that that at the end of time, uh, the one who conquers says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I have also conquered and sat with my Father on his throne. And so you kind of picture, okay, are they you know, seated side by side, kind of when you have two people trying to squish into a wide chair together, that it's the father and the son sitting in the throne. Is it that he kind of has another stool next to the throne, or what is the relationship there? The idea is that, that when you have one who's seated on a throne, they are in the position of absolute authority, right? When the king is seated on the throne, they have absolute authority over their entire jurisdiction, 
which in this case is all of creation. And now the Son, seated to the the right of the Father, simply means that is the co-regent. That's the vice-regent, ruling alongside the Father, equal in authority. So oftentimes in the Old Testament, you hear uh, a king or a ruler say, up to half of my kingdom, it is yours. Essentially, he's saying, you are an extension of me. And so you're considered in this place of honor. They might be thinking, well, Jesus is seated on the throne. Acts chapter 7, Stephen is being stoned. He looks up, the heavens are opening. And interestingly enough, there he says, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man is, is standing at the right hand of the Father. So what is it? Is it that Jesus is sitting? Is it that Jesus is standing? What exactly is he doing right now? Well, think of it this way. When it says that he's seated next to the Father, it doesn't mean that he's, he's glued to the chair, as it were. As if he's in a physical position, he's sitting there and he doesn't get up. Uh, rather, it's, it's depicting, in, in language that we can understand, the idea of he's in the, the position of reigning in authority. So I don't really need to think of it as, as Jesus is in the position of actually sitting down on a seat right now necessarily. That's certainly an implication of this. But the idea is that Jesus is in fact ruling. And when he sat down, the idea here is, is not simply that he's seated at the right hand of the majesty of the Father on high, which is true, and that he's in a position of authority, which is true. But the author has something different in mind here. He hasn't been talking about the royal reign of Jesus. I think there's a better connection here than to understand why it is that Jesus is sitting. If you look right here in Hebrews, the near context is the best way to understand a particular truth. Jesus is being contrasted over and over and over with the earthly priesthood. And so if you look at Hebrews chapter 10, follow down to verse 11, we read here that every priest, this would be every earthly priest, every Levitical priest, does what daily at his service? He stands. Every daily, every earthly priest stands daily at his service, Service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. Seeing when the author is depicting this, certainly Jesus is, is reigning in authority, but in the context here as a priest, he's seated not merely as the king, but as one who's finished his work. See, the standing Levitical priest was a sign that the job wasn't done. You ever had a job where you had to be on your feet all day long? You didn't have the ability to sit down. I've had those jobs. Those jobs are exhausting, right? You just stand and you work and you work and you work and you never get to sit down. I remember I had a job as a sales rep and I was so excited because it was my first, you know, real job as so it felt um, in terms of a a professional job. And I took it very seriously. And um, I remember getting my desk all organized and... uh, I like things organized. I like them a certain way. So I spent a long time getting my desk ready. And I remember my boss came to me and he said, um, you can't sell anything to a desk. So I don't really know what you're expecting to do here, but I don't actually expect you to spend a whole lot of time at the desk. I expect you to be out selling things where the customers are. You didn't get hired for a desk job. You got hired to sell things. See, the idea is that to, to accomplish that task, you need to be up. You need to be doing the work. 
And so the priest in the Old Covenant would come repetitively day after day after day and offer the same old sacrifice, the same old sacrifice, the same old sacrifice. It was an on-your-feet kind of job. In fact, as the temple's design and the tabernacle that we're aware of, there weren't any chairs anywhere. This was before the labor unions that would specify certain break times and how long you would have the opportunity to sit and what was considered appropriate and not. So the priest would show up at work in the morning on his feet and he would begin to work and offer sacrifices. And he would start in the morning and offer sacrifices till the end of the day, till his shift was over, call it a day and then come back the next day and then he would stand up and he would offer sacrifices all day. How do I know that it was the idea that Jesus sat down? Well, if you remember back in Hebrews chapter 1, when the author is giving the exaltation of the Son's glory, he says in verse 3, after making purification for sins, then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. My friends, it was after he completed his priestly work. It was after he did what he needed to do. See, he was sitting down saying, my, my work is done. I don't need to stand up anymore because there's no more sacrifices to offer. Think about the temple. There was no seats in the tabernacle, no seats in the temple. I mean, the only thing called a seat was the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. That was a gold box with two cherub angels um, imprinted over it to, to, to recognize the presence of God. You're not going to go in and sit on the mercy seat. That'd be the last time you ever sat down on anything in your life. So the priest would stand over and over and over, and yet when Jesus sits down after having made purification for sins, it's saying that forgiveness has been accomplished and full atonement has been made. My friends, for Jesus to sit down at the Father means God the Father is pleased. And you just think about the life of Jesus Christ. He comes on the scene, he gets baptized, and what's the father say? This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Now he's nearing the end of his, his three-year ministry. He's transfigured, and what does the father say? This is my beloved son. He's the one who I love. Then he goes to the cross. He offers up sacrifice to make atonement for sins as a priest. And what's the father say? I'm pleased. I'm pleased with the sacrifice. Sit right here by my side. My friends, this is the exaltation of Jesus Christ because he finished the work of accomplishing forgiveness for sinners. Beloved, behold your Savior. Now, if you're a Jew and you hear this, you are so encouraged because it means there's, there's no more sacrifices you have to offer. There's no more sacrifices you could offer. There's no more rituals to go through because the one sacrifice that, that would end all other sacrifices has been made and the Father's pleased because now Jesus is seated at the right hand of of the Father. My friends, when you come to God in the gospel, you rely upon this completed work that Jesus and his merits has accomplished every sacrifice needed for your sin. And so I just ask you this, do you live like one who has experienced this forgiveness? Do you live like somebody who has been forgiven? And we're going to see the, the capstone of the new covenant. There's a lot of blessings in the new covenant. What was the capstone over all of it? Full forgiveness. Full redemption. That was the main blessing. The main benefit of the new covenant is full forgiveness. 
So my friends, if Jesus is your high priest, then you have full forgiveness right now. As David described in Psalm 32, when the flood of judgment swirls of God's judgment against sin comes, and it's the perfect piercing judgment, one that knows every thought and intention and deed and dark part of your heart, when the flood of his judgment comes to judge sinners, David says, you will stand in that judgment. I just picture, I just picture a torrent. I mean, that's kind of the idea there of waters rushing and your feet are planted. And as people are getting swept away by that current, you're unharmed. Why? Because the judgment has already been poured out for your sin on another. Do you live like one who's been forgiven? One who's not fearful or ashamed of being a sinner? One who's not plagued by the the dark feelings of not being all that you think you ought to be or measuring up to the standards that God has set or you've set for yourself? Do you love much? Do you love Christ much? Do you forgive others freely? Do you easily release others from the sins they've committed against you? Do you joyfully tell sinners that they can be set free as well? My friends, we have full forgiveness in the new covenant. We have full forgiveness through the once for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And so now we are actually as God's people called to believe that and called to live in light of it. With great joy and freedom from knowing that my sins have been paid for, not in part, but in the whole. My friends, Jesus accomplished your forgiveness. Do you live like you're forgiven? You fall into to patterns of thinking of self-atonement. Boy, we do that a lot, don't we? You sin and so you think, all right, why? Well, I'm going to take myself into my little courtroom and I'm going to dole out a little punishment for myself. I don't want it to be such a hard punishment, you know, but I don't want it to be so little that it doesn't feel like it really was worth it. So I'm going to come up with a, a reasonable punishment for myself. So that I can pay for my sins. It's ridiculous. Oh, I've overindulged. So what I'll do, I'll just abstain for, okay, this period of time. That will make me feel better about my sin. I've been a, an angry hothead. You know what? I'm going to be extra sweet tomorrow. That'll pay for my atonement. I've been really selfish lately. So I'm going to do... Uh, do two nice things now, an act of sacrifice, I'm going to double it, or I said one cold prickly, now I'll say two warm fuzzies. I mean, whatever the case might be in terms of self-atonement, this idea that somehow I'm going to expunge the bad feelings I have that are associated with the guilt of violating God's standard. My friends, your righteousness is either found in Jesus Christ or you are without hope in this world. There's no way that you could ever atone for your own sins. And the glorious message here is that you have a high priest that that paid for all of your sins in their entirety, and now you're to believe it, and you're to rest in that. You're to depend upon it. You're to let it inform your thinking and your feeling that Jesus accomplished your forgiveness. How did he do it? Our second point this morning, he fulfilled the established pattern. This is so wonderful. He's going to explain now how it is that Jesus actually did this. And uh, 
It's a familiar truth. It's one you probably know, but it's, it's just marvelous the way that he unpacks how it is that Jesus did this. So verse 2, he's a minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Now this word minister is one who cares for another. And I studied this, I just assumed initially that minister meant servant, because usually in the, in the English Bible, when you read minister, it means servant, right? So Paul was a minister of the new covenant, he was a servant of the new covenant, Phoebe was a, a servant, uh, a recommended servant in the church. Uh, over and over, we read about minister and servant, and those words are usually synonymous. Uh, in fact, our word deacon that we use in English is usually uh, translated as minister or servant in the New Testament. But here when you read minister, this is actually one who cares for another. One who has special duties in relationship to another. You think almost here more of of like the word caretaker would be a good word. So Jesus is a caretaker. Well, who is he caring in behalf of? Me. You. You're saying that's why he's caretaking? That's whom he's caretaking for? His sheep? His little brothers and sisters, to borrow the language right here out of Hebrews as our elder brother? All who are in him. And so Jesus comes then as a a caretaker who's serving, a, a gentle priest in behalf of others in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord has set up, not men. So what's he talking about here? Well, the tent refers to the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Just shocking to think about how worship was set up in this little temporary structure built outside with some animal skins thrown over the top. And that was going to be the place where God would dwell. And so prior to the construction of the temple, that was where sacrifice was carried out. It was carried out at the tent in the little courtyard out in the middle of Uh, All of the tribes of Israel, they were spread around. They had the courtyard with a a little temporary fencing, and then inside of that, a temporary tent, and that was where they could go to commune with God. Yet even on its best day, it was just a little earthly space. God was not ultimately contained in the tabernacle. Remember what Solomon said when he was getting to build the temple? He said, who's able to build him a house? <laughs> There's a part of him where he's saying, I'm, I'm so excited to build the temple, and, and it's a joy and a privilege to do it, and I know I've been commanded to do it, but does anyone else think it's just a little, little bit odd that we're building a house for God to live in? He said, who is able to build him a house since heaven, even the highest heaven cannot contain him? Who am I, Solomon said, to build a house for him? Except, except as a place to make offerings before him. What's Solomon saying? Solomon's saying God is transcendent. He's omnipresent. He can't be contained in a building, but he's actually said, if you come and bring a sacrifice in this building, I'll show up. And so by faith, we're going to follow the plan and we're going to encounter God because that is the way he's designated to meet with us. Exactly what the Lord said of himself, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, Isaiah 66, 1. So what is the house that you would build for me? Behind in this 
earthly temple then was the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, Hebrews 9. We're going to look at that in detail as you'd go in behind the curtains to go to the presence of God where it was represented on earth. Yet ultimately, according to to Hebrews 9.23, these were copies of the heavenly reality. Now, copies, replicas, can be helpful. If you go look at a, a replica, maybe, you go to museums, if you like to go to museums and you get to see uh, you know, the, the building, maybe uh, an entire campus or something large, and it's, it's put in glass on a little table. You can kind of see the whole replica there, and you can enjoy what it looks like and kind of get a degree of experience. But it's not the real thing. It's simply a, a replica. It's, it's to teach you about the greater reality. And so when it says in verse 2 that, that Jesus ministered in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man, He's saying, look, whatever whatever it was that humans built, uh, they built it according to the plan. They got the materials. They got the supplies. They fabricated it. It was what God told them to do, so they set it up, and he chose to meet with them there temporarily. But at best, that was just giving you a little taste for what actually happens in heaven. Right? The The little cherubs over the mercy seat. You have a whole host in heaven that actually exists that are worshiping around the throne. Here's what we'll do to depict it. We're going to give you a little gold box. We're going to put two angels on it. Now, I'm not making fun of that. That that was depicting the real presence of God. But you have to understand, God is not not just sitting on a little gold box with two constructed angels sitting on top. That was to be a reminder of the reality that God's on a throne in heaven, surrounded by myriads and myriads of angels right now. And this is to help us Remember, this is to help us think. It's a little copy. It's a little shadow. It's a little replica of what's happening up in the true tent, which is heaven. And so when Jesus offered his sacrifice, the writer of Hebrews says, it was in the the authentic sanctuary. It was in the true tent. That doesn't mean that it was a false tent in the tabernacle uh, in the wilderness. It just means that 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 was the shadow. And so the true in the sense of the, the absolute reality was the one that was in heaven. And so Jesus comes now directly to God, and he just bypasses the tabernacle. And there he offers gifts and sacrifices. Verse 3, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. So the gifts, of course, were the the meal offerings and the sacrifices were the blood offerings. So it was kind of the, the gifts of praise and gratitude to the Lord, as well as the ones that would make atonement for sin. And so what the author is saying here is, priests aren't priests unless they have an offering. A priest without an offering isn't a priest. It's like a bus driver without a bus. It's not very helpful. Can't transport anybody. Priests always had had offerings. They had sacrifices. That was their job. Not only that, but this priest is appointed. Who's he appointed by? Well, he's appointed by God. and, And we looked at this extensively earlier in Hebrews. Why is that so significant? It's a reminder that you can't come to God on your own. 
See, your conscience was stricken with guilt. So you needed to go make an offering and present it to the Lord. And the high priest was feverish that day and couldn't come to work. You're out of luck. You got to wait until the priest is better, the high priest is better to make your sacrifice. Why? Because as much as you want to go approach God, you better not do it on your own. You're not going to bring that sacrifice. You're not going to bring that offering without the priest. You do that so far from being accepted, you're probably going to be incinerated. Right? God is not going to be pleased with that offering. And so the reminder here is of the priesthood is that God had to appoint someone, the mediator, to go between you and him to represent both parties fairly to bring about that reconciliation. And so Jesus comes as the appointed priest, and he offers gifts and sacrifices just because that was exactly what an earthly priest would do. In other words, uh, for him to be a priest, because priests offered sacrifices, Jesus had to come and he had to offer a sacrifice too. Now, of course, as we'll see, this was not for his own sins, like the Levitical priest, but it was for the sins of the people. My friends, he came to offer sacrifice to guilty people. You begin to think about guilt and what a pervasive problem it is. I was reading one study this week that was um, a secular author, actually, that is doing uh, guilt therapy and uh, had found through a study and, and published the results in a book uh, that among support groups for people who are struggling with major depressive disorders, uh, after undergoing this guilt therapy treatment with this therapist, 70% of the people reported they no longer had the symptoms associated with their major depressive disorders. Why? Because the feelings of guilt associated with the reality of guilt are so crippling and so debilitating. And so when Jesus comes here, he's offering a sacrifice that you could never offer on your own. You could never do anything to get to God. There was the separation that you had to have a priest, you had to have a mediator. And so Jesus comes and he offers this blood sacrifice that's sufficient for all people for all time. My friends, and you think about your worship, as one author put it, none of us can praise God or thank him or commit or dedicate ourselves to him in worship or obedience or service apart from Jesus Christ. Just as no Israelite could offer either a gift or sacrifice to God except through a priest, so Christians cannot do so except through their high priest. We cannot confess sin or seek forgiveness apart from Christ any more than we could have come to God apart from Christ. Anything of any value or consequence we do as believers must be done through our Lord. So Jesus comes, offers a sacrifice because that's what priests do. Priests do. And now the author tells us why he had to be a heavenly priest. Verse 4, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Now, say, what is he talking about there? Well, think about it this way. When Jesus was on earth, he did a lot of things. Right? He healed the sick. He made the lame to walk. He gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. He came proclaiming liberty to captives. He preached in the synagogues. He preached on the countryside. He removed people from demonic influence and delivered them. But how many times did he 
walk past the outer court of the temple to make a sacrifice. He never did it, right? He never came into the temple as a priest in his earthly ministry. See what you're reading here when it says, now if he were on earth, in other words, if he were an earthly priest, he wouldn't be a priest at all. Why? Who's the priest when Jesus was on earth? You know his name, Caiaphas, right? Joseph Caiaphas. Previously, Annas, his father-in-law. So Joseph Caiaphas is the high priest. He's officiating. How shocking is that? Jesus shows up in the temple every year at Passover. Every year you have this corrupt priestly line officiated by Joseph Caiaphas, nonetheless, the scoundrel himself, the unbeliever. And what does Jesus do? Give me that robe. I'm going to get in there and make a true sacrifice because you don't even believe God. No. Right? For Jesus to do that would have been, would have been breaking the law. See, Caiaphas had the right to serve as the high priest. He was in the line. He was of the tribe of Levi. And so for Jesus to minister as a priest at the physical temple in Jerusalem would have been breaking the law. He's not going to go up and, and take the vestments and, and begin to offer a proper sacrifice. Grab the tongs and say, give me those. Let me do that. I'm going to make the sacrifice now. He couldn't do it. In fact, Numbers 16 uh, said that, that uh, God reminded the people and said, no outsider, no one who's uh, not of the descendants of Aaron can ever draw near to burn incense before the Lord. And what was the warning? If he does, he's going to end up like Korah. What happened to Korah? The earth opened up and swallowed him. Okay, so that's, that's the rules of engagement. You come into the temple and you offer sacrifice and you're not of the descendants of Aaron, the earth will open up and it will swallow you whole. Jesus came and he obeyed the law. He fulfilled the law perfectly. So he comes not as an earthly priest to take the earthly priesthood by force, or even to begin to serve in that temple that was built by human hands, that was just a, a replica of what was actually taking place in heaven. No, they're just a copy, the writer says, verse 5. They're a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. You ever seen a, a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy? And copiers are so nice now. When I was in college, you'd get these just cruddy copies where the professor had copied something and then probably lost the original and copied the copy and it just had deteriorated to where the, the eyes have kind of connected the little dot that's supposed to have a space between it and the next line and everything started to get blurry. The idea here is that it, it's still giving you a sense of what was originally there, but it's, it's lost the beauty, it's lost the splendor, it's just a dim reflection, it's a shadow. So you can make it out, but it's nothing like the reality. The author says when Moses was about to erect, verse 5 to 10, he was instructed by God saying, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. Now we just think, uh, you know, he's, he's given the blueprints. In the Old Testament, the idea was that probably Moses actually saw a vision where God showed him what it was all to look like when it was done. So he had an artist's rendering, maybe a 3D rendering of what the tabernacle would look like when it was all complete because Moses was going to be giving instructions on how to lay this thing out. 
You know, the author of Hebrews is picking up on is that it wasn't merely for Moses to think this is the pattern and the blueprint by which you're to build from, but rather the entire tabernacle itself is a pattern and a blueprint of something greater. Exodus 25, the Lord said, make it after the pattern that I've shown you on the mountain. Exodus 26.30, make it according to the pattern that I showed you on the mountain. Exodus 27.8, make it to what I showed you on the mountain. Acts 7, Stephen preaching, again a connection there. Stephen says, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness, just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen. My friends, these serve as a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. What's he saying? He's saying to the the Jews who were tempted to go back to that that old way of thinking, that tabernacle life, which now had been replaced by the temple, an actual building, Jesus didn't come and fulfill the copy. Rather, the copy was designed to be a shadow of him who was the substance. See, copies are helpful, but they're not originals. They testify to the original. The replica testifies to the reality. The shadow testifies to the substance. So what were you to learn from that pattern? You have a holy God who wants to be near his people. That was the whole point of the tabernacle. I'm your God and I'm going to be right here in your midst. Because I want to dwell with you. Right there in the middle of all of your tents. Put me in the center of the camp. I'm going to come near to you. but you all are sinners. And so if you're going to dwell with me, you need your sins atoned for first. My friends, this was the pattern. It was the type. It was the shadow that God would provide atonement to deal with sin. See, this was always a shadow, as as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 10, verse 1, of the good things to come. It wasn't the true form. And Israel's tempted to go back to the shadow, the dim reflection. God was broadcasting to the world, I want to be near my people, I'm going to dwell among them. And yet, because they are sinful, there's a certain way that you have to come to me, and it is through a mediator. That was the pattern. So when Jesus came, he just bypassed the whole thing. He didn't go to the earthly temple. He didn't offer a sacrifice there. Because what he was doing was was making a sacrifice, the idea is in the heavenly sanctuary directly to God himself, that had, had the fulfillment of what all of these lesser realities pointed to. So when Jesus did that, he inaugurated a better covenant. This is our last point. Jesus inaugurated a better covenant. When you think about the cross work of Christ, Because we don't have all the, the background of coming out of Judaism, it's, it's hard to fathom the reality of what took place there. That the old way that God had been relating to his people was suddenly abolished and there was a new relationship, a new way that he was going to relate to his people. Jesus obtained, the text says, a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it's enacted on better promises. So what's the idea here? Jesus comes and he's a mediator. He represents both parties. He does it fairly and justly. 
These old priests were not false priests, generally. I mean, certainly Caiaphas was and some of them, but generally speaking, it was a faithful priesthood, a faithful order, but it was always inadequate. And so when Christ comes and he obtains his better ministry, it's enacted on a better promise, and the promise is of total forgiveness. I want you to track with me here. I want to make this point because I, just basking in this, there's so much to reflect on regarding the new covenant. And as I said, we're going to be looking at it in the next weeks. And it is absolutely glorious and marvelous and rich. But in terms of the old covenant, all of the saints who were saved in the Old Testament are going to end up in the same place that you do when you die, if you're trusting in Christ, right? All the Old Testament saints are ending up in the same place. So in heaven, there's not going to be two lines, those who are saved under the Old Covenant and those who are saved under the New Covenant. There's not going to be the A team and the B team. There's not going to be a, a grading in that regard. Rather, we're going to be unified that, that in the Old Covenant, you were, you were putting your faith in the promise of God to provide for your sin, which ultimately would take place with Christ on the cross. Now, in the New Covenant, we're looking back in faith on what God has done through Jesus Christ on the cross. So, what is the benefit of the New Covenant if we end up in the same place in the end anyway? We thought about that. If the Old Covenant brought about salvation, and the New Covenant brings about salvation, what's the benefit of the New Covenant? Straight language here, simple term, simple question. Do you understand it's the benefits and the realities that you experience in this life that the Old Testament saint never knew? Their sins were going to be ultimately paid for, just like your sins are ultimately paid for. But the difference is you get to experience now the reality of living this life, knowing all of my sins are completely forgiven. And in the Old Covenant, you had to be reminded continuously that I always need another sacrifice to make atonement for my sin, and the work is never complete. It's a promise of full forgiveness. And the indwelling spirit that teaches you the law of God. It's going to be right here in these verses. Not known in the same way in the Old Testament. They had the external covenant. So they had all of God's rules and standards. And they had a degree of love for God that they wanted to kind of be restrained by that which was external. Now in the new covenant, you're drawn to God by the spirit that indwells you. That actually brings you to God. And you're saying the benefits of the new covenant are realized right here and now, between here and when you die. Once you get to heaven, playing field is equal in terms of what we receive in terms of forgiveness. So you begin to think about how you relate to God right now. Your relationship is not based upon your performance. It is based upon a promise of God. And the promise of God is that he is entering into relationship with you based not upon what you do, but rather the finished work of Jesus Christ. My friends, Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. We're going to celebrate communion next week. It's going to be a wonderful time to celebrate because it's going to have new significance, I trust, as you hear it, as Jesus held forth that covenant. He said, this is a new covenant in my blood. A new way of relating to God. A new arrangement. A new agreement that brings you blessings right here and now until you meet him in glory.
My friends, we get to boast in this new covenant. We get to glory in this new covenant. We get to depend upon this new covenant. Will you pray with me? God in heaven, thank you so much for making a way for us to know you uh, that is a better way. Lord, I rejoice right now that I was born uh, and called uh, to be your child, uh, not under the old covenant, or not through circumcision, not through sacrifice, uh, not through the tabernacle or the temple, not through the the Levitical priesthood and all of its weakness. Uh, Lord, but called to be a, a saint under the new covenant receive full forgiveness, to receive the Spirit without measure. Lord, help us to understand uh, the richness of this and to live in light of it. Uh, Lord, we don't want to live like we're stuck in the Old Covenant, uh, like we're stuck on uh, our last best day, or we're stuck on waiting for uh, yet another opportunity to have our sins atoned for. Uh, But Lord, to know the full richness of forgiveness um, and to taste of it even now. Lord, help us to live as free people. Help us to tell others of this freedom. Uh, Lord, that as we proclaim the gospel to those who are lost and dying around us, that um, it would not simply be a message of judgment, although that's part of the gospel. Uh, But Lord, that it would be the offer of the full remission of sins, full forgiveness uh, through the priestly work of our great high priest. Lord, we love you so much. Thank you that you chose us. Lord, thank you that you elected us to be your people, that you called us to be a part of your new covenant. Uh, Lord, if it was up to us, we would have never come. We were unable and unwilling. And so we just glory in what we've received. We love you and we praise you for your great salvation. For your glory, we pray.